Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. I got a couple of pieces of family business. How many of you are here last week for about 10 minutes? Yeah, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it was during this service last week that our fire alarms went off. Good news, there was actually never a fire. It was a bad sensor. That's been taken care of. Great news is we are so appreciative of how everybody followed our evacuation plan. And I want to explain to it for those of you that weren't here in case, and we hope it never happens, but in case we would have to evacuate, uh, I made a mistake last week uh, in asking you to go. I sent people out the nearest exit. And we realized that uh, I didn't follow the plan we had in place. In any future event, because we need to move early childhood students out quickly and safely, and when they see you as parents, they go to you, we're going to send everybody out the back doors and the north doors and let you know where your children are so you can go to get those. But the way you responded was brilliant, and uh, we're greatly appreciative of it. Most of all, there wasn't a fire. Now, somebody did ask me, did, was my sermon so bad I pulled the alarm? And... Uh, <laughs> The response is, I would have waited till after offering, so you know it wasn't me. <laughs> All right? So I'm innocent for one of the few times in my life. I'm going to own it. All right. The other thing is we want to encourage you to come next week, if you haven't heard yet. We're uh, going to be led in our morning worship by the Carrollton Band, which is a group of worship uh, ministers from four different churches who are phenomenal musicians, and they have a band. Uh, they have been touring with Believe and Move during the summer, so our students are very familiar with them. Uh, they're phenomenal men as well as musicians, and they're going to be leading, uh, they're going to be our worship leaders next Sunday morning and doing a concert at 5 o'clock in this room next Sunday night. There's no tickets, so no cost of admission. We are going to be taking up an offering for Bundles of Hope, uh, that group of students in our church that started this ministry to take care of kids in foster care situations by giving them backpacks full of encouragement. And so we're going to be taking an offering that night, uh, and so we're going to just encourage you, make plans to be here at 5 o'clock. We uh, I love these guys. I love who they are, and I love their sound. Someone asked me, and I'm going to embarrass them by saying it, it's like a Christian Eagles. That's all I'm going to tell you. Their harmony and musicianship, and they love Jesus, and it would be worth your time to be out here at 5 o'clock next Sunday night. So we want you to be aware of that opportunity as well. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and we're in a series called Why Church? In week one, Michael DeFazio opened... Uh, this series so well by simply telling us, why church? Because God. Because of who God is, what he wants to do in and through us. Because he wants to be in a relationship with us, this thing we call a covenant, God put together the church. In week two, last week, and let me tell you what I would have told you if you'd have stayed, um, God wants to give you a new heart. He wants to take the old, calloused, broken, and abused heart And he wants to instill in you a brand new heart that beats with love and life and obedience. And only God can do that. We can't do that to ourselves. Only God can do it. So this week what I want to talk to you is take you into the the next thing that God does. And it's called choosing life. Now, I, I hope some of you at this moment in this series are asking yourself, we're talking about why church and this is the third week and we haven't talked about church yet. There's a reason. We'll never understand the answer to the question, why church, if we don't understand because God. If we don't get God figured out, 
and why God gave us the church. If we don't understand what he wants to do in it, we will make the church about us and not about him. We'll turn in church into whether or not we're getting what we think we need instead of responding to why did God give us this opportunity? Why did he call us into it? And he did. Why does he want us to participate in the church? And this is why in our culture today so many people are saying, I love God and I love Jesus, I just won't go to church. And they've misunderstood. You can't say you love the groom and can't stand his wife. You can't go to God one day and say, I loved you and everything you did for me, but your wife, man, what a witch. I'm not standing around her. I couldn't stand her. She drove me crazy. In fact, I went the opposite direction of where she was. You see, when we understand who God is, we understand his bride, and his bride's you and me. The reason the church can sometimes be awkward is because I'm always awkward, and I'm in the church. So when we understand what God's wanting to do, we can understand how we become a part of it. Are you with me? All right, I'll I'll do it again if you need me to. Are you with me? All right. So here we go. When we look at what God's doing, I want to begin in verses 15 and 16. Remember, this is a sermon Moses would have preached. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. It's a choice between life and death. It's that significant. God's not offering you something that's convenient. God's offering you something that you must have, absolutely necessary. I'm indebted to the the three points that I'm going to make are variations of what Dr. Timothy Keller taught on this particular passage. It caught my imagination, and I thought it's an easy way to look at the text we're going to look at. And what I want to point out to you is that when we talk about this choosing life, there's some significance to it that we need to know. Number one, the availability of God is simply ordinary. The availability of God to us. This relationship he wants to have with us and to make us his bride, to turn us into his family again, to restore the father-son, father-daughter relationship. It's very simple and yet very ordinary. Look at verse 11. Now what what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. It's simply ordinary. But let me explain this to you and see if you can agree with me. To understand what God wants from us is simple to understand, yes? If you think about it, okay, we got time. I'll, I'll just hang out here. It, it's simple to understand, right? But it's incredibly complex to live out. Are you with me? Uh, let me explain it in a more simple fashion. When I took Bible survey a thousand years ago when I was in college, Dr. Brantley Doty taught the class, and he would give us a snapshot of every book we were about to process. And when he came to Deuteronomy, this is what I wrote down when I was 19 years of age. Here's the three points of Deuteronomy. Love God and put his will ahead of your own. Simple? Church, talk to me. Simple? Second, love your neighbor unselfishly and put their needs ahead of your own. Simple? As a result, you'll have a healed and full heart. Yes? Now, let me ask you a different set of questions. 
Putting God first, complex? Putting your neighbor ahead of you, complex? Trying to understand what a fulfilled heart is all about, complex? Yes. What God wants to do is simple, yet left to our own devices, too complex for us. But it's simply ordinary. Moses said to the people, what God has asked you to do makes sense in your heart, and it makes sense in your head, it makes sense in your hands, your feet, and out of your mouth. It's a simple thing God wants to do. He's available, he wants a relationship with us, he wants to change our hearts, and he wants to invite us into the depth of being his. Simple. So what's the second thing? The availability of God is stunning in its ease. It's stunning how simple this can be if we understand what God's trying to do. And it makes our purposes in life simple as well. Let's focus on verses 12 and 13. I learned a lot about this in my study for this particular chapter. Moses says, what God is trying to do, it's not up in heaven, so you have to ask, who may ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? And nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? I would not have understood those texts if I hadn't had the opportunity to do the study I was able to do. Let me rephrase this, what I think makes sense in the American mind. Moses is saying what God is offering us is not so elite, so spectacular, that we need a superhero that will go to the upper depths of heaven and solve the magic uh, key to look at what's going on in the environment and say, you know, these things are happening. And if you add this and this and this, there's a secret code. And in that secret code, we're going to get a secret key. And that key's going to unlock all the history of the world. And then we're going to understand what God's doing. He doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. That we need someone who's going to ascend to where we cannot reach. Someone so magnificent and powerful. So much greater than you and me. Someone so elite. Moses goes, no, it's not it. There's not going to be this one elite person who tells us what God wants to do, he's already told us. It's the second part that's even more complicated, where he says, nor is it beyond the sea. Now, that concept of the oceans and the sea doesn't mean to us what it meant in those days. If you study the mythology of every culture, you're going to understand that their greatest heroes got in ships and traveled across the what? Seas to slay dragons, to overcome kingdoms, to accomplish great things. They were men of valor. They were men of accomplishment. They came back heroes like Hercules and all of these great mythological characters. And what Moses is saying is, we don't need someone so perfect and elite to uncover the great code of the heavens, nor do we need someone who has so much valor and so much uh, heroics that they travel across the dark sea. Have you ever seen an ancient world map? Have you ever noticed like the big thing with the tentacle coming out of the water in the great oceans? Do you know what their mythology was about the oceans? It was full of danger and threat, and you needed heroes to slay the dragons, to bring back the princess, and to overcome evil kingdoms. And Moses just brought all of this together when he said, what God is trying to do doesn't need someone so perfect and elite that's not me. And we don't need someone who has so much valor that he crosses the sea and slays the dragons for us. God has put it before every single one of us. I want a relationship with you. I want to be your father. I want you to be my child. Church, are you with me? If you want to see what this looks like, I want to take you to a passage uh, that's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. You can turn to it if you want, or you can just write this text down or circle it on your outline. 
Because it proves that what we say is, do I want to be saved? Do I want eternal life? Do I want to be a part of the kingdom? Then I have to prove my worth. We're all driven by this desire. We, we want to be able to say to God, I'm glad you saved me, but you didn't need to work as hard to save me as that guy. Right? All of us want to feel like we're contributing something. If, if God had to give 100% to save that guy, we hope he only had to give 30% to us because we had a couple of bad days. And Moses is like, no, God wants a relationship with you, and he's the one who had to do all the work. He descended from heaven to be with us so every one of us knew how much he loved us. He showed us what he wanted for us. You see, the relationship with God is, is something, it's not something you achieve, it's something you receive. It's something that he offers and gives us. In 2 Kings 5, there's a man named Naaman. He's a Syrian general. He's an accomplished man, and he comes down with leprosy. And leprosy was a death sentence. And he knew of the God of Israel, and he'd heard the stories of the prophet's power. So he went to a prophet named Elisha, because he knew Elisha could heal him. And it's significant what the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 5. He went with treasure. He took gold and silver. He was going to give the prophet something of great power so that the prophet would heal him. He also went with a sword. He was a general. He had the army available to him. If Elijah would have needed authority and protection, Naaman could have given it to him. He went with letters of recommendation. He had letters from kings telling him he was a good general and that he should be taken care of. You see, he went to the prophet to be healed and he had all the things he needed to purchase the healing. You need money, I got money. You need protection, I'll give protection. You need my reputation and my acclaim, I'll give that to you too. He had everything that we do when we try to earn our way anywhere. He goes to Elisha's house, knocks on the door and asks to see the prophet, and Elisha won't go to the door and even see him. Elisha sends his valet out, and the valet says to this great Syrian general, go down to the Jordan River, the muddy Jordan River, and dip yourself into it seven times. This is what the Bible says, verse 11, 2 Kings 5. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Let's pause there for a moment. Naaman's not satisfied that the way that God wanted to work was the way he should have worked. Naaman had expectations, right? I'm going to do this, this, and this, and God will respond. But God didn't. Naaman, or Elisha stays in the house. Naaman's not even respected as a general. He wouldn't even come out and have a conversation with him. In verse 12, he responds, Are not the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. What I love about this particular text, it's been one that's fascinated me ever since I was a kid and I first heard the story in church, was that it says he went into the Jordan River and it was muddy and filthy at that time of the year. Notice that Naaman says, there are cleaner, better, more prominent rivers that I could go to. Why this filthy Jordan in this God-forsaken area of the world? And it says that he went down the first time and he came up and he still had leprosy. And he went in the second time, he still had leprosy. And he went in the third time. You're tracking with me, right? Fourth, fifth, sixth time, he comes up and he's still got leprosy. It wasn't until he completely obeyed and went in the seventh time and came out that his skin was as if he were brand new and born. Here's what God's asking us to do. 
Obey because we trust him, not obey because we understand it all. He says, obey because you trust me, not obey because you like what I ask you to do, because it's convenient, because it makes you look good, because it shows people that you've earned something. God says, I just want you to be obedient. You see, we tried to prove our worth, and when you and I try to prove our worth with God, we diminish his. When we obey because it makes sense or it makes us look good or people notice what we do, we're diminishing the glory of God by raising up our own. That's not obedience. That's self-serving. What we have here is a situation where it is simple, simply ordinary to know who God is. Every one of us can know who God is. It doesn't take the elite and it doesn't take the heroic. It takes the people that are willing to obey and trust. You see, the gospel's value is not found in how we accepted it. The gospel's value is found in who gave it to us. Who gave us this good news? God did. We'll never understand why church until we truly understand because God. So Ephesians 2, Paul tries to describe it in a different way to the people of the New Testament. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Simple text. The life he gives me is not my own anymore. It's his. And I live it because of the work he did. There's nothing I've done to deserve it. He's offered it to all of us, and it's a simple process to accept it. It's stunningly easy. Just take what God has given. But then here's where it gets complex again. Let's look at the third thing today. The availability of God is unimaginable in its promise and power. It's amazing what God wants to do if we'll let him do it. Not what we do to earn it. Not what we do to achieve it. But it's to hold on to that something different. It's not about what we do. It's about what we receive from the one who did it all. That makes this interesting to us. Makes it powerful. Full of promise. Look at verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and then the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart draws away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witness against you, that I have set before you life and death, Blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Time out. Does that not just contradict everything I've said all morning? Didn't it sound like we just went from God did it all to you better do more. Is that tension present? Where you start to look at this and go, now wait a second, one minute preacher, you're telling me that Jesus did it all and we gotta stop trying to earn it and prove our worth. It's not about our worth. We're not better than anybody else. There's nobody who goes to church that God had to do less work to save you than he did to save the worst person you can imagine. And now Moses says, no, but if you keep the words and you don't turn your back and you follow him, there's blessings. But if you turn your back and you walk away, there's going to be curses. What is it? I want you to key in on verse 20. It's the heart of this passage. For the Lord is your life. 
When Moses presents to us the opportunity to accept what God wants to do, it's not based on how good you and I are. It's based on what he's provided us to be alive through. The Lord is your life. It's no longer our obedience. This is the first and last time it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And I looked long and hard to find similar passages. It's found throughout the New Testament. And I'm going to show you a couple passages here in a moment. But he's talking about spiritual eternal life. That our life is not found in our obedience. Our life is found in God. And until that is arranged, our obedience is a desperate attempt to save ourselves knowing it'll never work. I look at my life at the number of things, and this is just being honest and transparent, the number of things I've tried to do to make my way, the number of people I've tried to befriend, the number of people I defriended, the number of things I've tried to accomplish, things on my resume, possessions. I've tried like the rest of us. I've tried everything possible in my imagination to prove my worth. And every time I attempt to raise myself up above another human being, I devalue the glory of God that values every human being. It's not about how high we raise ourselves up. It's whether or not we die to self and become alive in Christ. This is why Moses says, the Lord is your life. He is the one that's going to bring you life and obedience and love. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. As we head to conclusion, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul uses our passage from Deuteronomy today in a very powerful way. Beginning in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. So the law provided escape. But the righteous that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does say is, the, Lord, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your, in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if we confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's a powerful passage. It's used quite often and I'll be honest with you, if I can be, I hope this doesn't appear arrogant, but as a teacher, I hope I can say this to y'all. Many of us believe that if you confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth, that if you at one time in your life say, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord, we need to be very careful if your definition stops there. Because the demons believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and it doesn't change anything. It's not about one day saying out loud, I believe he's God. He's God whether we believe it or not. What it means in the Bible to believe on Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is not only to profess he's Lord, but to follow him and act like he is. It's to choose the life that he offers us. Our obedience is not put away. Our obedience is a response to the fact that if Jesus says this is good, it's good. And if this is wrong, it's wrong. And when Jesus speaks, we respond to it. It's an obedient acceptance of who he is. And the scriptures say that when we hold that with all of our heart, which is more than just our emotions, but with all of who we are, if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord by the way we live our lives and by the life we choose to live, therein God has done his greatest work. You see, God is a covenant God. He wants a relationship with every one of us, and he's let every one of us know that. He's a God who wants to change our hearts from hardened and brittle and angry to loving, obedient, and full of life. So he asks us, 
choose life. How do you, how do, you do that? Be perfect? You can't. Do something of great valor? You can't. All of the work of valor has been done in Jesus. What it is is follow the life Jesus is calling you to. Choose life, not death. Choose prosperity in his kingdom, not abandonment to a kingdom that will be crushed. Paul is saying, for Christ is the end of the law. Christ has put away our need to be perfect. We don't have to climb into the heavens, and we don't have to cross the most dangerous seas. We just have to choose to believe by faith. Paul does it more simply in Colossians chapter 3. He's talking to believers now who know who Jesus is. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Your life is no longer what you're making of it. Your life is no longer your strict obedience. Your life is hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in God, holding on to him taking your worst moments and abandoning them and choosing those moments when you don't know what to do and you don't know who to become because God, because of what God's done. You see, in this audience this morning are people who for a number of years, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, you're holding on. You're saying, I'm trying my best. I'm doing my best. When I meet Jesus on that day and I stand before my judge and every one of us will be judged, the beauty is, If you're saved by the blood of Christ, you'll be judged by all the good things you offered him. And in in Revelation, it says we'll all wear crowns of accomplishment. And then Jesus will walk in the room, and there's a beautiful picture. All of us will take off our accomplishments and we'll put them at his feet. The real king's in the house. And every one of us will say, I've done nothing. God's never going to say to me, Mark, how many sermons did you preach? And I can tell him. Say, how many did they listen to? Well, tell them that too. How many Sunday school classes did you teach? I can tell him. How many classes did you go to? Probably tell him that too. How many Sunday nights did you come in and preach and there were four people there and three of them slept? Oh, I got every one of those numbered. Because I feel like maybe that's how I'm going to get into heaven. How much money did you give? How many people did you see in the hospital? How many funerals did you... I can give you lists that people measure preachers by, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand before God as a preacher. I'm going to stand before him as a guy who's got Jesus' heart beating in him because Jesus put it there. Church, are you with me? This is not a day that we celebrate that we're better than other people. Why, church? This is a hospital for broken hearts. And God does surgery to replace the hard heart with the heart of life. I ask you today, will you choose life? Because if you choose life, you choose Jesus. You quit battling, trying to be as American as you can be, and still go to church. You get rid of the idols. You put the things aside like fame and accomplishment and money and possessions. You put all that aside and you stand over and you say, the only thing that I'll stand on for the rest of my life that has any security, the only thing that defines me in a way I need to be defined is Jesus Christ. Because, church, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I'm done. Is God good? Is God good when you're bad? Is God good when you're broken? Is God for you when you've been against him? Did Jesus Christ come to bring you life that you could not have without him? And that's the reason right now we're going to spend some time thanking our God through music for what he's done for us. Let's stand together. 
Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.